Today, we're going to continue our exploration through the different Gospels, focusing on Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to take a slightly different approach to last week. Last week with Mark, we focused on reading Mark as a whole, saying if we're starting at the beginning and working through how has Mark put together this narrative so that we go on a journey with him and we discover who this Jesus really is. We saw how we are presented first with Jesus, the miracle worker, the one with authority, but then he starts revealing himself as the one who'll suffer. And then how there's this travel narrative and we're meant to learn about discipleship and discipleship is following Jesus on the path to the cross. And as we see Jesus die on the cross, that's when we truly realise what it means to him to be the son of God. Having done a a kind of big picture perspective of Mark last week with Matthew, we're going to take a different approach. And actually we're going to zoom in on a few uh, particular sections, as it were, and look in more detail. So hopefully the combination of the two will teach us different ways, I guess, of um, or the different methods we need to use to get different bits uh, out of the Gospels. And also there's been more for you to do this week. So I hope you've come with your brains engaged because we're going to try and make sure we give more time to activities and to discussion and to actually reading Matthew ourselves and trying to understand what he's saying to us. So the broad structure, we'll start with a very brief introduction and then we'll talk about the overall picture of Matthew and then we're going to get into, I think, there's three or four um, key landmarks in Matthew's Gospel, which if we get time, we'll go through all of them. And then I'll actually end by kind of tying together the pieces of what are the key themes, the key focuses of Matthew distinctively. Introduction then. I'm not going to say much on author, date and location, because actually you can easily read this in your own time. And I think our time is better used reading the Gospel. But let me really quickly zip through as an overview. Last week we said Mark has been overlooked for most of church history because it's the shortest, because almost everything he writes is in either Matthew or Luke. People kind of didn't really see the need for Mark. The exact opposite is the case of Matthew. Matthew is quite long, not I think as long as Luke, but is long, has lots more of Jesus' teaching, just lots more in there. And it was kind of the go-to gospel from pretty much the start of the church's history, from the second or third century onward, right through until probably only a couple of hundred years ago when Mark began to be read a bit more. The Gospel was probably written by Matthew the Apostle, but as we said last week, it's really hard to know with any ancient text who wrote it, uh, where it was written, and when it was written. Like all the Gospels, it's formally anonymous. It doesn't actually say who wrote it, but the evidence of the early church is consistent in saying Matthew the Apostle did. And if you read your notes, you'll see there's some confusion about Matthew's Gospel. The early church thought it was the first gospel to be written and thought it was written originally in Hebrew or Aramaic. And yet actually we know, as we saw session one, the likelihood is Mark was written first. Because when we compare the gospels, the most plausible explanation is that Mark was written first. And because of those parallels between Matthew, Mark and Luke, they must all have been written in Greek. What seems to have happened is there were other gospels. There's a gospel called the Gospel uh, to the Hebrews that circulated in the early church, which was similar to Matthew. And the early church got confused between the two. And when they're talking about a Hebrew gospel, they're actually talking about that, not about Matthew. So even though the the early church say Matthew wrote this and he was first and he wrote it in Hebrew or Aramaic, actually it seems sensible to say they're right that Matthew the Apostle wrote it, but not that it was the first gospel or that it was written in Hebrew or Aramaic. And there's a few little details which might support this identification in Matthew. It's the only gospel which talks about Matthew as the tax collector, And there's almost this sense in the list of the 12 disciples that Matthew's putting in a little uh, phrase to remind the reader of the story of grace that's been shown to his life. Even though he was a tax collector, one of the most hated people in society, 
Jesus picked him out of the crowd and called him to follow him. There may be a particular interest in all things financial. There's quite a lot of talk about taxes and uh, money in the gospel. And really important is the fact that Matthew just isn't actually a prominent apostle in the early church. We know pretty much nothing else about him. So if someone wrote this gospel and then thought, well, I want people to trust this and listen to it, Matthew is not an obvious candidate. Peter is the obvious candidate, someone who we know more about, someone who is more prominent in the early church. The fact that Matthew is the name assigned to it, the best explanation to that is that he was actually the guy who wrote it. When we turn to the date, there's less evidence for dating Matthew. We said last week the kind of watershed in first century history is the destruction of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Like with Mark, some people say, well, Matthew must come after that event because it talks about that event in great detail. But like with Mark, when we actually compare the account uh, written by Matthew to accounts by people like Josephus, who um, were there probably, it's actually not very similar. There's no necessary reason to say this was written later than 70 AD. <coughs> Perhaps the easiest date then is in the 60s somewhere. Matthew actually talks so much about the temple and about going to the temple and doing things at the temple that it sounds like the temple's still there. There's not much point in recording teachings about what you should do when you go to the temple if the temple isn't actually there. So I think the most sensible date is some point in the 60s, that's 30 years after Jesus has returned to be the Father. So maybe just five or ten years after Mark writes his gospel. And then the location, there's even less evidence about. We just basically don't know. Matthew seems to be writing for a very Jewish audience, so he's probably writing somewhere where there's a large Jewish population. Some people therefore suggest um, Palestine. But the most common suggestion is Syria, which is the area kind of to the north of Palestine, and particularly the city of Antioch. There are a lot of Jews there, a large Jewish population. And the first time we find Matthew's gospel mentioned um, outside of the New Testament is in uh, the writings of Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch, which may suggest it was written somewhere around there. But really, we just don't know. Written somewhere probably where lots of Jews lived. We don't know, and it doesn't particularly have a huge bearing on how we read the gospel, so that's okay. Let's think then about an initial overview. The structure of Matthew as a whole is actually quite hard to discern. Last week, we were able to divide Mark quite clearly either into two halves, as many people do, or into those three sections of an ongoing uh, journey and story, as we did. Matthew is difficult not actually because he's not structured, but almost because he's got so much structure. He has so many patterns of three, so many thematically linked sections, so many repeated phrases which seem to be kind of signposts or bookmarks that if you try and put them all together it's just really hard to have a, a unified system. I think the best way forward therefore is to think about two things. The first is that in some ways he does follow the pattern of Mark. So it's there in the notes he does start with a prologue like Mark did but he expands it hugely. He gives us stories about Jesus's birth. He then has that time in the north, the ministry in Galilee followed by Peter's confession, which starts the journey to Jerusalem. And then the last chunk of the gospel is given to that last week of Jesus' life, as Mark 11 onwards was. And Matthew seems to recognise this structure in 4.17 and 16.21. So that's just after the temptation, before the Galilean ministry, and just after Peter's confession. He uses this repeated phrase from that time on. He seems to be deliberately introducing these as different sections. So he had noticed in Mark that there are these different stages of the story. But as well as having that marking geographical structure, there's also evidence that he had a different structure going on. And particularly, that's because of the way Matthew uses Jesus' teaching. We said last week, Mark often calls Jesus teacher, 
but then oddly records very little of Jesus' teaching. Matthew records loads and loads of Jesus' teaching, and he actually groups together Jesus' teaching into five different blocks, and he takes these blocks and kind of inserts them into this Markan uh, structure that's already being created. And these blocks each have a very clear theme, and also they are very clearly marked as distinct uh, teaching, because after each one, Matthew writes, and when Jesus has finished saying these things, dot, 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 something happens. So for each one, he's showing us this is a, a bookend, an end of a section. And so another way we can divide the gospel up is by these five different uh, areas of uh, teaching. So we've got this kind of interaction in Matthew of narrative stories, followed by a chunk of teaching, followed by more stories, followed by more teaching. The teaching is very much thematically linked, and that's helpful because when we're reading the teaching, saying chapter 10, we know it's about mission. The stories are sometimes really thematically linked. So chapters 8, 9, lots of stories of healing and stories of uh, demons being cast out, all about Jesus' authority. And yet other places, you're reading the stories, trying to piece together why they're together. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, to find any answer to that question. But when we kind of put these together, as I try to do in this table, we get an idea for the big picture of how Matthew works. So he starts with this prologue, as I said, much expanded from Matthew. has a couple of chapters about Jesus' birth. And then he also expands quite a bit on the ministry of John the Baptist, on the baptism of Jesus, and then on the temptation of Jesus. And then it's that point that Jesus is propelled into his Galilean ministry. So this whole big first chunk that happens in the north of the country. You have just a little introduction, and then the first of these main discourses, these uh, teaching uh, kind of sermons. And the first one, very famous, often called the Sermon on the Mount, is all about discipleship. And we're going to look at that in some detail today. Then there's some chapters of narrative, Jesus' authority being shown in healings and demons being cast out and a bit of teaching. And then we get a second big chunk of teaching, all on mission. And Jesus is really pointing out to the disciples, you're about to go out, and he says opposition is going to come. It's going to be really difficult. There's warnings about persecution and opposition. And then in the next narrative section, the guys go out and Jesus goes out and that confrontation, that conflict begins to emerge very quickly. If you remember last week, one of the things that happens right from chapter three of or chapter two of Matthew, uh, Mark's gospel is that conflict begins to emerge. And Matthew's kind of pushed that on a bit. But from here on in, actually, the story of the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities is one of the most important parts, actually, of what Matthew talks about. In the middle of the gospel, we get the third uh, discourse all about the kingdom of heaven. And this is where Matthew has brought together a whole load of parables and groups them all about the kingdom of heaven. And hopefully that's one of the bits we're going to zoom in on today as well. Then we get more responses to Jesus, both positive responses and negative responses. And that all culminates in Peter's confession. Like in Mark, this is a big moment. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he declares him to be the Christ, the son of God. And that starts this journey to Jerusalem. As soon as it's announced who Jesus is, and he's announced what he's going to do, just as in Mark, he set his path to go to Jerusalem. Um, he teaches on the way, and then we get the fourth um, discourse, which is all about relationships among disciples. Matthew is unique among the, the Gospels in talking about the church and actually using the word church. And he talks about relationships that are to... Uh, uh, kind of form and to shape this community he's forming. We then get some narrative and teaching and discipleship, and then we arrive in Jerusalem. And the pattern's quite like in Mark. First, there's the judgment on the temple. We get the fig tree again. We get Jesus uh, clearing out the temple again as this sign that he's 
come and coming in judgment to the temple, just as he did in Mark. And then just as we did in Mark, we had the temple episodes and then the controversy with the Jewish leaders really beginning to kick off. And then we're on a direct course heading for the cross. Before that, we had the fifth and final bit of teaching on the future, about the future of the temple, about the future of Jerusalem, and also the future in Jesus' return. And then finally, this leads us into the Last Supper, through the crucifixion, the burial, onto the resurrection. And Matthew, again, hopefully this bit we'll zoom in today, is unlike Mark, he gives us more detail of the resurrection, tells us actually about what happens uh, at the resurrection and the resurrection appearances. So by putting together the geographical thing of Mark and these five blocks of teaching, we begin to get an idea of the shape of how Matthew works. And some people have said, I just think this is interesting, even if it's not necessarily right, some people have said it's interesting there are five blocks of teaching, uh, and one of the things we're going to find is that Jesus is presented in this gospel as being like a new Moses. He's kind of modelled as like Moses. And the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses, and are often called the books of Moses in Jewish tradition. And some people have said maybe Matthew is deliberately echoing the idea of the five books of Moses by the five uh, speeches he says. People then turn their nose up at that because they say, well, there's no connection between the first one in Genesis and the second one in um, Exodus, uh, which I think is true. But I think the general fact there's five there probably is him trying to say this links back to the very beginning of that story to everything that Moses did. So that gives us the broad uh, picture in kind of the broadest terms. And if you want to go back and read the gospel after tonight or after our time together over these weeks, using that structure might well help you. You can say, okay, I'm in these chapters and here I'm expecting to find increasing opposition. That will hopefully help you trace out the flow of the story. But what we're going to do with the time we've got tonight is to look at, I think, four key sections. We're going to look at the infancy narrative, the stories of Jesus' birth, We're going to look at two bits of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount and the parables in chapter 13. And then if we get there and have time, we'll look briefly at the resurrection in Matthew 28. Kicking off with the infancy narrative. Matthew, unlike Mark, but like Luke, does tell us about the birth of Jesus. And you might remember from week one, this structure of having stories about the birth of the figure and then nothing and nothing and nothing until they appear on the public scene actually is a really common strategy, a really common um, structure of Greco-Roman biographies, which is what we decided these texts are. So you might think it's a bit odd, a biography we'd read today would tell us about the development of the person through their teens and their early career. That's not the interest of ancient authors. You start with the uh, birth, then you jump to the important moment. The reason you start with the birth is how you're born and kind of what happens at your birth in the ancient world is really important. Again, week one, you might remember we said People in the ancient world were understood statically. How you are when you're born as a person is how you are throughout your life. We have this idea that we develop, we are shaped by our experiences and our background, our education, all sorts of things. That's not the way people are understood in the ancient world. And so how someone is when they're born and the things that happen around their birth are seen as a really important indication of um, what they're like. So there are stories of the emperors. There are stories of emperors being born, Roman emperors, and stars appearing in the sky at just the moment when they're born. There are different things that happen which are taken as symbolic of significance of these people. And that's definitely the case of what Matthew's telling us here. He puts together these stories he's collected from, who knows, maybe from Mary, from eyewitnesses there, to show us what Jesus is really like. And I've divided here the story into, uh, I think, five maybe sections we in our little groups going to take one section each and have a look at the questions we're giving here and try and open the text of Matthew ourselves 
and try and work out what is Matthew trying to tell us about Jesus, who's at the centre of this biography, through what he's saying. So let's just share these out so we cover all bases. We've got one, two, three, four, four of them. That's handy. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Excellent. Shall we do... We do both, either together or apart, like to do the first one, which is uh, the family tree of Jesus. Fantastic. And then you guys here in the middle, do you want to do um, the birth of Jesus? You might want to split half and half so that some of you start on question two, because that's the harder one to take more time. Um, and then back corner, do you want to do the stars and the visitors? And then maybe both these groups here could do the fleeing and the return. That's the last section. We'll give out 10 minutes to this. Everyone know what part they're doing? Excellent. I'll float around, so do grab me if you get stuck. <coughs> Share some of our findings. <laughs> Who said no? <laughs> Another day. I can't quite stretch that far. Let's go for it. It's fine. I'll help you. Um, who had, it's you guys that had the family tree at the beginning? So Matthew opens his whole gospel. The whole New Testament starts with something that most of us find deathly boring, which is a long list, takes up most of the whole page of my Bible, of names of people begetting, or uh, how does he put it, fathering people. Did you notice who does, um, who's particularly highlighted in this family tree? Do you have any ideas on why they've been highlighted? Definitely, yeah. Abraham and David are the key ones. Have any ideas of why that might be? Excellent, yeah. Good, yeah. Abraham and David are really, really important. Do you remember why the particular they're important? Yeah, promises is the key word here. So when, Je- when Matthew's talking about Jesus' family, he points out he's directly descended from the two men who were foremost in Israelite history, the promises given to them. If you're here week two, you remember we had the whole timeline, and I kept pointing back to Abraham, who is here, because the whole Bible story is waiting for the promises to Abraham to be fulfilled, and to David, the crown here, because the promises made to David about a king and an everlasting kingdom were going to fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So immediately, you're meant to, you know, your ears are meant to kind of shoot up and go, oh, this guy is descended from the one who's been promised. Their descendants are going to receive the fulfillment of God's promises. This guy is really important. Think about verse 1 in particular. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Did that sound familiar to anything? And if so, why is Matthew doing that? Definitely. It sounds a bit familiar to the very beginning, but also to this phrase he uses for each of his stories uh, in Genesis. In Genesis, every uh, big chunk starts with the beginning or the, the kind of the generations of Adam and Eve, or the generations of Terah, who is the father of Abraham. And so again, he's pointing us back to the beginning. He's saying this is a, a new beginning. This is a, maybe a, a new creation. He's pointing back to creation stories and saying this is like the very beginning again of God acting in history. God's doing something. And then the culmination of the family tree makes a big point out of there being 14 generations. This is either you know a factoid or you don't. Do you have any idea why that might be important? Do you know anything about the number seven? Well, that's a perfect number. 
Excellent, yeah. So in biblical um, themes, seven is the number of perfection, probably linked to seven days of creation and that seventh day rest. And when he gets to the end of this genealogy, Matthew points out from Abraham to David with 14 generations, from David to the de- deportation to Babylon, that is the exile with 14 generations, and from the exile to Christ, there are 14 generations. There's a thing of perfection in it. It's perfectly um, complete, as it were. There's seven is the perfect number, so two times seven is even better. And of course, that makes six sevens, which implies that Jesus is the seventh something. So if you want to go really far out, which may be overreading Matthew, but he may be saying Jesus is the seventh thing. Jesus is the perfect thing. We're meant to be excited. Even though all we've had is a long list of this person's father, this person, we already know a lot about Jesus, and we're meant to get excited about the fact he's about to arrive, which he does. Thank you, group. Good job. He does in verse 18, which was you guys, the birth of Jesus. So when we meet Jesus, he's born, we have a few key names are used for him. What were the names and why, what are they telling us? Excellent. Excellent, yeah. So Jesus, as Richard Wright pointed out, is the Greek form of Joshua, which means God saves. Also, it's quite a common name, but even so, it's quite significant. Joshua is the one who, you know, takes the promised land. There's a lot of links there. And particularly when you think about the whole thing of expectation of a violent Messiah, the stories of Joshua are quite violent. <laughs> so even that may have fed him when, when a Jesus comes along and he claims to be the Christ, which most people think would be a warrior Messiah, the fact he's called Jesus, Joshua, he's going to create all those ideas of getting rid of the Canaanites and stuff and probably feed into that. All right, excellent. Excellent. Yeah, so Christ is the Greek version, Messiah is the Hebrew version. Brilliant. And then the second half of your one, a bit more tricky. Matthew says that this promise the angel gives to uh, Joseph in this account um, is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7. When you read Isaiah 7, did you manage to figure out what was going on? Jeff did. Fantastic. Jeff, enlighten us. (laughs) There'd be faith in you. Excellent. I really like that. Yeah, yeah, Emmanuel, God coming is how the kingdom actually comes. Excellent. Really, really good. When you read Isaiah first time, it's basically nothing to do with Jesus. That's what we'd certainly think. It is this thing of uh, 
the guys in the north are teaming up with S uh, Syria, who are also in the north, and they're going to invade Jerusalem. King Ahaz, is one of the things he said, is really worried, and uh, God promises to give him a sign. And the sign is that a kid's going to be born who's going to be called Emmanuel. And we all know from Christmas readings that in chapter 9, the child is born. It has, in a sense, nothing to do with Jesus, seemingly. And this is one of these interesting things about Matthew. Matthew doesn't, or rather the way Matthew uses the Old Testament, it's not how we instinctively use the Old Testament. And yet, he is New Testament scripture, so we do also need to learn from him from that. Matthew says that this is actually fulfilled in Jesus. Even though the child, Ahaz would say, was born way back, and the promise was about a thing happening there, actually Matthew says it was fulfilled in Jesus. We're going to see when we get to the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew is showing us, or Jesus in Matthew is showing us that the whole Old Testament story is pointing forward to him. And there's all these pictures, what sometimes called types, which are kind of ways God does things. And then when Jesus comes along, the writers say, look, this is the way God does things. And here's Jesus doing it in the same way. He's kind of saying, Jesus matches up with this story. And so Isaiah 7 certainly is about this child who was born in, whenever this would have been, the 700s um, BC. But he's also got a deeper meaning, in a sense. The very fact he's called Emmanuel is a sign of a deeper meaning. No normal child who's born can be really called God with us. And so Matthew is saying this child and this, um, that was born, this promise that was given, and you're absolutely right, it was this thing of protection of the kingdom being established, is mirrored in Jesus. He's saying these two things standing parallel. So it's not that Isaiah said, uh, you know, in 2,000 years' time, one called Emmanuel will come and he'll save people from his sins. That's not what Isaiah is saying. What Matthew is saying is that this pattern that God has established in Isaiah is here fulfilled and replayed, as it were, in Jesus. So Jesus is doing the same thing, as it were, as this child is in Isaiah. Well done. That's a really hard bit. You handled it really well. We then turn to chapter 2, the star and the visitors. Is that you guys in the back corner? So, who are these men who follow the star, and how are they different from other characters in the story so far? Excellent, yeah. Really good, yeah. And more than what kind, what kind of learned men are they? What are they doing? Yeah, it's kind of baffling how they know this star leads them to where they are. Um, and you're right, it's interesting, they're Gentiles, whereas all the characters so far have been Jews. It's the Gentiles who come. It's also interesting that they're astrologers. Astrology is uh, against Old Testament law, and yet God here chooses to use it for good. And that's also quite surprising. People, basically people who should not be in the people of God and are breaking the law of God are the ones to whom God reveals something, which maybe says something about God's heart. And then um, how do the reactions of these guys who follow the star differ from those of the Jews, which is Herod's, Herod, the chief priest, and the scribes. Good, yep, the Gentiles, yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Really good. So immediately, the second chapter of Matthew, we're seeing that actually the Jews, and it's the Jewish Messiah coming, but the Jews, some of them are rejecting him. Some of them are not wanting him. And yet the Gentiles, who in a sense, have very much less uh, 
say or less claim on him are the ones you actually actually come, actually pay homage, actually worship. And the reason this text in allusion to a passage in Isaiah, which talks about the Gentiles coming. So Matthew's pointing out, right from the very beginning, right from him being a baby, that actually Jesus' mission is bigger than just the Jewish people who've been indicated in that family tree of chapter 1, but also he's going to be welcoming in and drawing in the Gentiles as well. Yeah, good point. These wise men, yeah. Presumably they were respected, I guess, for their um, astrological skill. That's a good point. They're not, just point out, they're not kings. The idea that they were kings developed centuries later and the names given to them as well. They are magi, which are, I think, Persian astrologers. So they're, they're very clever people rather than royal people. Um, and then the last section for both of your groups, the fleeing and return. So this is where um, Herod's trying to kill Jesus. And so Jesus and his parents flee to Egypt. And then once Herod has killed the children, they come back. In verse 15, Matthew quotes an Old Testament prophecy. Again, he says it's fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, who's the prophecy about? And what does this tell us about what Matthew thinks about Jesus? <laughs> well, we got a bit confused because we went for Hosea first. Good. Hosea mm-hmm. 11, is it? Jesus said that we got that out of Egypt from Jesus. So he's talking about Jesus is going to come from Egypt. Good. So in Hosea 11, who is the son about whom God is talking? He's talking past tense because it's something that's happened in Israelite history. Who did God bring out of Egypt in the Old Testament? Anyone can answer? Moses, Moses, good, yeah, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. When Israel are brought out of Egypt in the Exodus, God calls them collectively his sons. And so here he's talking about the fact that I I called my, or brought my son, i.e. Israel, the people, out of Egypt. The fact he's applying that to Jesus, what might that suggest about what Matthew's trying to say to us? Who is Jesus like? Moses and Israel in general. Jesus, he's saying, am I going to give you the answer to the next question? Yes. Tell me the answer to the next question then. No, what is the next question? Oh, yes, I'm, I'm not going to give you the answer. Jesus is saying that this man in some way represents or encaptures the history of my people, of Israel. Israel has been kind of uh, narrowed down to one man, and this one man is in some sense reliving the experience of Israel. And the next question, what other person, rather than people group, and story in the Old Testament does this scene remind you of? Excellent, yeah, yeah. Because it's all about being in Egypt, uh, about babies being killed, about being rescued, just like Moses, how he was rescued when Pharaoh is trying to kill all the babies. One of the things that Matthew's doing here, and Matthew does particularly in the early chapters of his gospel, but also throughout, is to show us that Jesus comes as one who relives the story of Moses and the story of Israel. We could call him a new Moses and a new Israel. So if you think straight after these um, birth stories, we've got Jesus being um, baptised, going through water. So hand up for question. Yeah, please do. Yes, we'll go back. Yeah, 
He's appointed by the Romans. So at this point, this is like 4 BC, um, there are, before he dies, before he dies. So he is king over all Palestine, but he's a puppet king for um, the Romans, exactly. And he's actually only half Jewish um, by birth. And so he's not liked. By the time we get to Jesus, there are kings around Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is ruled by a Roman governor, ruled more directly because basically they were seen as kind of high risk. So he's called King of the Jews. And even that's important. When Jesus is crucified, if you heard my Christmas sermon, uh, he's uh, crucified as King of the Jews. There's a direct competition between Jesus and Herod. So well pointed out. So after these stories, we have Jesus being baptized, going through water. We have Jesus spending 40 days in a wilderness, uh, not having food. Uh, and going up onto a mountain. And then straight after that, we have Jesus going up onto a mountain and giving what seems to be some sort of law, some sort of teaching. And this really closely mirrors the experience of Israel. Israel came out of Egypt, as Jesus does. They went through the water of the Red Sea, as Jesus kind of does in a baptism. They spent 40 years in the wilderness wanderings. Jesus spends 40 days. They complain about not having food. Jesus doesn't complain about having food. The wilderness wanderings are the opposite of the temptations in the sense that the Israelites get it all wrong in the desert, but Jesus gets it all right in the desert. So not only is Jesus reliving the story of Israel, he gets it right. The first son of God, Israel, got it all wrong and were disobedient. This son of God gets it all right and he is obedient. And then just afterwards, Jesus goes up onto a mountain, gives the Sermon on the Mount we're just about to look at, just as when they got to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain and receives the law from God. Matthew's trying to say, this guy, he's reliving this history. And that's to tell us that history, we know that story, remember session two, it all goes wrong, humans can't keep their side of the bargain, we're still waiting for the end of that story, and they, they got it all wrong. Here we see Jesus getting it all right. He's trying to show us actually the end of the story is just about to come, because finally God has a son who's obedient to what he says and will actually do the whole job for him. So that's the... Um, introduction in a sense to Matthew's gospel that's where he takes us to just before Jesus is launched into his public ministry into Galilee so even just with that we already know a huge amount about Jesus and a lot to expect of him as he comes let's have a quick look at our next um, landmark and I won't probably talk through all the notes here because I got a bit over the top on the Sermon on the Mount but this is a it's a good practice to do a good example of zooming on one bit of teaching and because we'll see here the key message of this sermon is in a sense one of the reasons Jesus has so much conflict with the religious leaders throughout the rest of the gospel. So one of the reasons we're highlighting this bit of teaching more than any other is because if you choose to read the gospel later, you'll see, I think, how the heart message of this sermon is the problem, as it were, between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. Their failure to do this thing is um, the issue that comes. So this is probably, I guess, the most famous bit of teaching in Matthew's gospel, possibly actually, as a whole chunk, the most famous bit of Jesus' teaching, full stop. And the theme of this first uh, block of teaching is all about discipleship. How do you live as a faithful follower of Jesus? And there's also a central motif of the kingdom of heaven that comes through um, several times. Kingdom of heaven, by the way, just means kingdom of God, but is further evidence of Matthew's Jewish nature. Jews, historically and still to this day, don't like to say the name of God, certainly, and sometimes even the word um, God. And so we'll use other things They'll say Hashem, the name, or something, instead of saying God. And Matthew, being very Jewish in nature, has absorbed that. And so rather than saying the kingdom of God, he says the kingdom of heaven. It means the same thing, but it's a very Jewish way of saying that. So even that puts up our antenna of 
expecting this to be uh, kind of a song sang in the Jewish key. Um, and so this combination of discipleship and kingdom of heaven suggests that to be a disciple is not just to be a, a follower or a, a learner, a pupil, as the word means, but also means coming under the rule of a new king. Actually, this discipleship isn't just following another rabbi. Actually, there's kind of a, a bigger claim going on here about allegiance that is to be called. And the big interpretive question, the thing we've got to establish to read this well, is what is the purpose of this teaching? Why does Jesus give this teaching? Because there are different ways it's been read. There are loads of different ways actually it's been read. But maybe two are most important and two would be most familiar to us. One is people say this um, sermon is here with these kind of high demands on disciples to show our need for Jesus. The idea is you're meant to read it and say, well, I'm nothing like that and I can never do that. Therefore, I need help. I need a saviour. In this sense, it works very much like um, Paul sometimes sees the law in his letters. So Romans 7, Paul says, and Galatians 3, one of the reasons the law in the Old Testament is there is actually to drive us towards Jesus, for us to go, here's my life, here's the law, I've got a big problem, I need someone to come and rescue me, to come and help me. That's actually unlikely to have been Jesus' primary purpose, I think, here. But actually, it does do that as well. There is a sense, as you go through, you do realise that of your own steam, this is not you, this is not something you can do, and it's pointing you, driving you to your need for Jesus. What I think it is trying to do is to show us how we, as disciples, followers of Jesus, live in the time when the kingdom of heaven really is present, but also isn't fully here. This time we sometimes talk about the, the now, not yet tension. The kingdom of God is now present, we now live in it, yet actually it's not yet fully present. There's a day when Jesus comes, when all you know, brokenness, all sickness, all difficulty, all sin is completely eradicated, when the kingdom will have come in full. And this teaching is about how do you live in that context, in the interim, and be a faithful follower of Jesus on the earth. And we can divide it into three sections with an introduction and a conclusion. And I'm going to try and quickly zip us through those three uh, sections. It kicks off, the introduction kicks off with a setting where it takes place just after Jesus' first bit of his uh, Galilean ministry. He's already called a few disciples, so he's teaching them how to live. It happens, interestingly, on a mountain. As we've already said, this echoes the idea of the story of Moses and Israel. He's going up the mountain to teach the people. Mountains are really significant in Matthew. If you read the Gospel through, he talks about lots of mountains, and several of his references to mountains aren't found in Mark or in Luke. And the most, um, or the meaning of this seems to be, based on a study by a guy called Donaldson, that mountains were a place of eschatological importance, which means in Jewish thinking, they're linked to the idea of God's deliverance, to God's final act. And so a lot of the texts, when I had those big volumes in week two, which talk about these figures who are going to come, the things happen on mountains. And even before Jesus, there are some people in the first century. There's one guy who leads a load of people off to Mount um, Gerizim, which is in Samaria, and they follow him because they think he's going to a mountain. He's a leader. He's the one who's going to rescue us. So even the setting of a mountain is really important in telling us who Jesus is. And then he sits down. Sitting down is the natural pose of a rabbi who teaches. Maybe uh, counterintuitively for us, in Jewish tradition of the time, you sit down to teach, but you stand up to pray. Whereas we might like to stand up to teach and to sit, uh, yeah, and to kneel down or sit down if we're praying. So he's acting as a disciple. And those around him are called his disciples. These are people who are chosen to follow Jesus. He kicks off with what we sometimes call the Beatitudes. That just means the blessings. And these are about identifying those who follow Jesus. It's not saying uh, if you do this, you get this. This is actually kind of 
the true marks of a disciple who are the people who Jesus will then address. And the sense of all these things, they also, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. The sense of blessed is that they've been shown great favour by God. These people are fortunate because God has blessed them. And even more than that, there seems to be an eschatological sense. They seem to be linked to this idea of God breaking into history, doing his final act of deliverance. The first three certainly allude to Isaiah 61, and a few others uh, allude to different places in the Old Testament, which shows this isn't just uh, kind of formulaic, you know, if you do this, you'll get this. This is actually about God breaking into history and the people who are going to be involved in that. These people who are lucky are those who are receiving and will receive the fulfilment of all those promises that God has made. And if you pick out a few examples, you can't look at them all. Each one is about a heart attitude and the response that comes. So the first ones are the poor in spirit. These are the people who realise that they are spiritually poor, spiritually without anything of their own steam, that left to their own devices, they are deserving of nothing. And so their relationship with God is based on trust and the faith that he will um, receive them. And he promises for them that they will, or they have, in fact, present tense, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second ones are those who are mourning. And this isn't actually, in this context, just mourning over the loss of a loved one, say. This is specifically, alluding to Isaiah 61, mourning over one's own sin, so uh, our spiritual condition, or over the situation of Israel as a whole. So, Israel, uh, so um, Isaiah 61 talks about mourning over the fact that Israel is still in exile, still not God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And Isaiah also has this great theme of comfort, comfort, comfort my people. And Jesus says here, those who mourn will be comforted. He's deliberately alluding to all this language, those who are brokenhearted over the fact they're still not God's people in God's place, they're going to be comforted because actually one's going to come who's going to fix the problem. And then jumping down to verse 6 is a good example. It shows us that these things are about attitudes, not about doing something to get something. It says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. So hunger and thirst for righteousness is to want to be living in the right way. And righteousness is kind of a key word for Matthew for right living as a follower of God. He's saying those who have this heart's desire, recognising they're spiritually poor, they can't do it on their own, but come with that hunger and thirst, God will satisfy that need within them. He's pointing forward basically to the work of the Holy Spirit working in us uh, to help us and empower us to live this way. He then talks about the disciples' position in the world, which you can read later, we'll skip across that. And then we get to the first main section, which is the disciples and the law. One of the most difficult sections of Matthew, some of them probably the most difficult verses in the New Testament, which tackles this big question of what is the relationship between a Christian disciple and the Old Testament law? which still is one of the most uh, thorny and tricky subjects really in Christian theology. And depending on our theological backgrounds and who we read more of, whether we read more of Paul or more of Jesus and the Gospels, we might find what Jesus says a bit surprising. We might expect Jesus to tell us, oh, the law was there, but that was for the old covenant and it's no longer binding over us. But actually Jesus really doesn't do away with the law. And in some ways you could read it and think Jesus is making the demands of the law even more tough. He's kind of raising the stakes. But actually what we're going to see and what I'm going to try and show us is that he's not in contradiction. He's not actually even in tension with what Paul says in places like Romans or Galatians. Actually their understanding of the position of the law, the role of the law, is really very similar. It's the same. But they are drawing different points from it. And so we'll summarise that when we get to the end. 
In verse 17, Jesus kicks off. He wants to make sure he confronts a possible misunderstanding. He knows people might hear what he says and be thinking, oh, this guy's come to just to get rid of the law, to totally abolish it. He says, um, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And the fact he says law and the prophets, or the prophets, is really important. That's a summary phrase for the Old Testament. You've got a few references there. Several times in the New Testament, very much so in Jewish thinking, the law and the prophets, or the law, prophets, and writings, is the summary of the whole of the Old Testament. So he's not just talking about commandments. He's talking about the whole of the Old Testament. He's saying, I haven't come to abolish it, to get rid of it. Don't misunderstand me. And he says, I haven't come to do that. But he says, what I have come to do is to fulfill the law and the prophets. He has come to fulfill the Old Testament. And this is probably the key statement for understanding the whole of the Sermon of the Mount. And two things are important. One is the fact that he says fulfill. The opposite of abolishing something is keeping it or establishing it. Jesus doesn't say I've come to keep the law. He doesn't say I've come to establish the law. He says he's come to fulfill the law, which is something slightly different. This means Jesus isn't saying I've come to keep the law perfectly on your behalf. Jesus does keep the law perfectly. He does do it on our behalf. Paul would kind of point that in Romans 5 and um, 1 Corinthians 5, I guess. Um, That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, I've come to keep the law on your behalf. The other thing is important. What is fulfilled is both the law and the prophets. It's the whole of the Old Testament. He's not just talking about the commandments. So again, he's not saying, I've come to fulfill all the commandments for you. He's saying he's come to fulfill the whole of the Old Testament. With this in mind, the best way of understanding this is that he's come to bring that unfinished story of the Old Testament that we saw in session two, and all those promises made throughout the Old Testament, he's come to bring them to realisation with the promises and bring it to completion, to bring the end of that story. And this fits with what we've seen in the infancy narrative, the way he uses fulfil to say these unfinished stories, unfinished things are being um, completed in what Jesus is doing. And then in verse um, 18, he further expands this, he explains this. Whenever you see the little word for in the Bible, it's normally pointing backwards and telling you that what is about to be said is giving more evidence, more reasons for what was just said. So further evidence for what he's just said is that actually he says the law, even the tiniest part of it, even though, what's he put, the iota or the dot, that's the tiniest Hebrew letter and a single dot that goes in some Hebrew letters, even those tiny bits, he says, aren't ever going to pass away until two things, until heaven and earth pass away and until all is accomplished. Heaven and earth passing away is a reference to the end of time, Jesus returning, a new creation coming, which suggests that all is accomplished links to the same time. He's saying for all of the church age, the complete authority of the Old Testament remains intact as it has always been. And even though in this verse, verse 18, he does actually only say the law, because he's so closely linked to verse 17, that key word for, he's almost certainly talking about the whole Old Testament. He's saying the authority of the Old Testament remains for Christians throughout this time. And therefore, because of this, verse um, 19, we're now on, actually to keep the law and to uh, correctly teach the law, he says, is really, really important. So important, it will affect one's positioning in the kingdom. He doesn't say, interestingly, that wrongly or failing to keep or failing to teach correctly the law will lead you to not be in the kingdom. He just says you'll be the least in the kingdom, which is quite important to notice. And also remember, he's already told us he's come to fulfill this law, this story, this unfinished story. He's going to end it, which means even though he's saying the Old Testament still has full authority, 
He's also saying this now has to be read through the fact that he has come to bring the fulfillment of that. Which means actually what it means for the Old Testament to have authority and how it will be applied the other side of Jesus may sometimes look different to it did before Jesus. So he's simultaneously saying the authority of the Old Testament stands and continues, but because I am completely fulfilling it and bringing it to its completion, that is going to look different after me to how it has done before me. And then verse 20, again, is further explaining that key word for. It is, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying this principle in um, verse 19, that it's so important to keep and to teach correctly rather than relaxing or changing the law, is true because actually the way you get into the kingdom of heaven is by having a righteousness that exceeds even the Pharisees, who are the guys who've got all this uh, oral tradition guarding the law. Here's the law. They put all the oral tradition around. So if they make sure they keep this, they're guaranteed to have actually kept the thing in the middle. And when we get to the scribes and Pharisees in the Gospels, the criticism is not of what they're doing per se. The desire, originally at least, of the scribes and the Pharisees was to keep God's law. And God's intention when he gave the law was that people would keep it. But actually what we're going to find throughout this sermon, the problem with how they're doing it is that they've missed the heart of the law. They've gone too much into details, been too picky, been too, pushed it too far, basically, and missed actually the heart that God put in the law. And they're so often being hypocritical, that they've got all these laws and all these oral traditions and they're claiming to do this, that and the other. Actually, the fact is that in their heart, they're not connected to God at all. Their hearts could be totally turned away from God and all this stuff is just external trappings. And so this challenge to have righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees is vital to understanding what comes. It's talking about what's going on inside rather than what's going on outside. There are kind of two meanings to what it means to have greater righteousness. Some people say, well, this is pointing to the time of the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he will enable people to live in such a way that they can be uh, they can reach that sort of righteousness. So that it could even be an allusion to Isaiah 61, already touched on at the beginning of the sermon, where it talks about the one who comes and uh, the year of the Lord's favour, and that being the time when he raises up oaks of righteousness. The Messiah is going to come and make people righteous. An alternative reading is that actually this is about getting one's heart in the right place. The problem with the scribes and Pharisees is they've missed the real heart and they're being hypocritical so often in their claiming to keep the law. And actually Jesus is saying your righteousness needs to surpass because actually your righteousness needs to be heart deep, as it were, rather than just skin deep. But actually I think the two options come together because I think actually the Messiah coming is also linked to having the right heart to do it. In the Old Testament there's a few key bits and the more we can add to these which talk about the fact that when the age to come comes, when God acts decisively to um, restore his people, he will write his law on people's hearts. Jeremiah says, you no longer need to tell your neighbour to keep the law because it's written on hearts. There's this uh, natural inclination to keep God's law because it's deep within. And Ezekiel talks about the fact that hearts of stone will be transformed to hearts of flesh and empowered by the Holy Spirit, people will once again keep God's law. So I think actually he's saying your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And the way that happens is that when the Messiah comes, he will be the one who starts the time when your heart gets transformed. The law is written upon it. It's changed from stone to flesh and the Holy Spirit empowers you to live his way. That I think is 
the point of what's going on here. And that does echo what Paul says, Romans 8, that's what Paul's saying there, that there's something about us being transformed through the work of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that now we do keep God's law. So it's not that God's law is thrown away, but actually now the fulfillment comes not through striving to fit it, but through the filling of the Holy Spirit in us. And then after Jesus has done this introduction on where's the place of the law, how does it work, he expands on what it means to keep the law in view of Jesus' fulfilment of the law, because it's not as simple now that he's come. And we get these things where Jesus says on six times, you've heard it said this, but now I'm saying to you this. And he's not saying the Old Testament said this, but I'm correcting it and saying this. He's saying people have uh, understood this or people have um, commonly said or commonly believed this, but now I'm clarifying it. We actually know it's the case because in at least one of them, what is said, uh, you shall hate your enemy, is not actually even found in the Old Testament. He says, you've heard it said you should love your neighbour, that's in the Old Testament, and you should hate your enemy, that's nowhere in the Old Testament. And in fact, just before you're told to love your neighbour in Leviticus um, 19, you're told not to hate your brother. So these aren't just Old Testament versus Jesus. This is people's wrong understandings of, wrong additions to, wrong interpretations of the law, which Jesus is clarifying in view of his fulfilment of the law. And the relationship between the two halves, I haven't got time to look at more in detail, varies between. Some of them he's saying, actually, you've heard it said, but what's said is about the outward. What I care about, Jesus is saying, is the inward. Some of it's saying, well, the original law was this, but actually it's pointing even further than that. It's going even uh, kind of beyond that. And then the final statement after these, you've heard it said, but I say to you, bits, is hugely challenging. Jesus sees a really strong connection um, between being perfect and the perfection of God as Father. So verse 48 of chapter 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In verse 45, he said, um, or to do this, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes, is that right one? Yes, yeah, so I love your enemies and pray to those who persecute you, so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Matthew makes a really big thing of Jesus as Father, much more so than any other Gospels. He uses the word Father for God, so not for Jesus, for God. Both Jesus saying, my Father, and also saying, your Father. So in a sense, of all the Gospels, Matthew is the one that most talks about adoption, about being a child of God. But Matthew's really clear, what it means to be a child of God is to be obedient to the Father. I just I found this really striking, I was struck by this a few months ago. This is a really important part, actually, of biblical conceptions of adoption. To be a child of God, means to be obedient. And the way that Jesus throughout Matthew is shown to be the son of God is that he's shown to be obedient to the father. And so whereas Paul has this very big focus on intimacy, I guess, in adoption, Matthew and Jesus have this really big focus on obedience. And he's saying actually the sign of a true child of God is not uh, some sort of spirituality, but actually is obedience, which is a really important, really challenging teaching for us. He kind of puts a line under the stuff about the law and then he turns to talk about the religious life of his um, disciples. How are they going to give? How are they going to pray? How are they going to fast? And here's where this thing of the hypocrites comes in. And for each group, he talks about the fact, he says, don't do it like the hypocrites do it. And he gives his instructions on how to do it. A hypocrite, the original um, meaning of this word was actually it was used for a, um, an actor in Greek theatre who wore a mask. And so who was hiding their identity and pretending to be someone else. That's where the word comes from. And so he's saying, don't wear a mask externally and pretend to be somewhere else like these guys are doing. Actually, he's saying what's important is what's on your heart. And each bit he says about, pray, uh, about giving, then about praying, 
uh, than about fasting. He says, don't do it like the hypocrites outside, but he says, do it in secret and your father in heaven will see it and reward you. And each one ends with the idea of your father in heaven seeing what's done in secret and rewarding. Again, here we have themes of obedience. We have themes of the heart issue. If you do these things in secret, the only reason you do them is because of your heart. No one's seeing you to think you're really good. It must be because your heart is rightly orientated to God. And just really interesting, your father in heaven will see you, he says, and each time he says, we'll reward you. Again, this is a theme we don't think about much, but Jesus is really clear. God promises reward, actually, for being an obedient son or daughter of God. From verse 19 of chapter 6 onwards, he turns um, a bit more outward and talks about the disciples' relationships to possessions and the disciples' relationships to people. But then we'll skip to the last section, which is the conclusion where he says about the importance of a right response. And he gives four little bits of teaching, little parables, really, each of which have two options, two gates, two trees, two responses, two foundations. And he's kind of laying before them, here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to have your heart rightly orientated, which leads to you then living um, in line with God's ways. And he's saying, now the choice is kind of before you. Are you going to build on the sand, which will just fall away when the storm comes, or are you going to build on the rock? Are you going to take the harder, narrower, maybe more painful looking way, which leads to eternal life? Actually, are you going to take the really wide way away from God, which is no good? Let's just pick out verses 21 to 23, because they're sometimes ones that worry people. If I can find them. I can't, it's in the wrong chapter. It's a bit where he says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, walkers, you workers of lawlessness. He's saying there's two responses in this one. That's the two things. There's a response of you're welcomed in, or actually there's the response of depart from me. But actually the reason there are two different responses is because there have been two different uh, attitudes towards doing the Father's will. The one who entered the kingdom is the one who has done the will, Jesus says, of his Father. And notice he says they're going to say, well, we did all these things, all these external things. We prophesied and we did that, this, that and the other. But clearly they haven't kept the will of the Father. There's the same contrast between the external and the internal. And once again, we see the mark of true um, relationship to God, the mark of true being a child of God, is not anything external, it's not being able to prophesy, it's not being able to speak in tongues. Actually, it's a life of obedience. A changed heart, just as Paul says, is the true marker, actually, of what it means to be uh, a follower of Jesus. So the Sermon on the Mount has been variously read as a rejection of the law for disciples, saying we don't need the law, or actually the strengthening of the law. Matthew saying you need to keep all of the Old Testament law. But at its heart, actually, something completely different. The point that comes through when we carefully read it through at its core and its conclusion is that what really matters is our heart response to God. Outward conformity is not sufficient. It's not actually what it's about. It's inward transformation, which naturally leads to outward obedience, which is really vital. And this way, we said at the beginning, how does this fit with Paul? This fits very much with Paul. Paul says actually you're transformed by being united to Christ and that then leads you to live in certain ways. You're no longer a slave to sin, you're now a slave to righteousness. They're saying the same thing, they're just saying it in um, different keys, in a word, as, as it were, in different terms. 
And even the way they use the Old Testament, although Paul was saying somewhere like Romans 7 that the Old Testament has no uh, kind of binding authority over a Christian anymore, he's not contradicting Jesus' claim of its ongoing authority. Paul's idea is you've come out of that old covenant, but the law's still there. It's still um, the marker of God's wisdom. And actually, Paul himself, he uses the Old Testament law. Ephesians 6, when he's talking to children, he quotes um, Old Testament law, one of the Ten Commandments, and says, children, you should keep this because it's a commandment. And he really stresses the fact you should keep it because it's a commandment with a promise. So Paul hasn't rejected the Old Testament law against Jesus' wishes, as it were, but he's understanding it through the fact that Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has fulfilled this whole story, which means our way of applying it now is different but very much that it's still got authority, it's still there. And so within Matthew's Gospel as a whole, this teaching is really important, actually because it tells us about Jesus. Think about week one, Greco-Roman biographies are all about the key character. And even the way Matthew presents this is telling about Jesus, because it finishes by saying, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew's summary, even though there's so much for us to learn about ourselves and how we are to live, his summary actually is about Jesus. What was amazing to them is the way that he taught, the authority that it shows. Ultimately, it's all pointing us towards who Jesus is and um, how the response should come. Let's turn over to parables. I'm going to sit in over tasks in just a minute. Parables are found in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, but are most common in Matthew and Luke. And the term actually refers to a wide range of things. We tend to think of the narrative um, parables when we use the term but it can also be used for just various types of short sayings and just for simple similes, for saying this thing is like that thing. And they're designed to illustrate and communicate something, but they're also actually designed to make people think. They're in a sense not meant to be simple. Jesus could just give the truth without the parable, but actually there's meant to be uh, something that makes you think in them. Often this is because there has something in it's unexpected. You're meant to read it and the unexpected thing makes you think about something. There's been a lot of debate about how we to read them. The kind of historic tradition in the medieval church particularly was to treat them as allegory. That means for every little item, for every person, every place, every object, you link it up into something in the real world um, and it becomes a story about the real world kind of in code. And everything has to be um, connected together. The problem is this leads to absurd interpretations that Jesus' audience would never have thought of. So the most famous one is that Augustine in the fourth century a church father gives an interpretation of the good samaritan which is all about the good samaritan being jesus and even down to the fact of the two coins that the man gives to the innkeeper are representative of i can't what it is the holy spirit or something or something in the church but no first century jew hearing jesus tell this story could ever think that two coins were about something that's going to happen in the church and so allegory was then rejected and people said no the parables are meant to give you one point for every parable, you're meant to end up at the end with, here's the one point that Jesus is trying to teach me. But that also doesn't work, primarily because the parables that Jesus explains in the Gospels have more than one point. And so you can't say they're one point things, because if they are, Jesus didn't understand his own teaching. A better approach says there is no one-size-fits-all way to read these. Some of them do contain bits of allegory, but actually then some of them don't. Some of them are one simple point. Others are more kind of narrative examples. They're meant to show us in a narrative world how we should live. So let me give you three tips for reading parables. Allegory is sometimes present, but it's never complete. You're never going to find one where every little detail of the story maps onto something in reality. 
Often the people are allegorical. Often you're meant to see the characters and it's meant to be clear that they link to someone. So authority figures are commonly representative of God. So if you've got a father or you've got a, um, uh, you know, a landowner or something, the authority figure probably represents God. And that means the people below them, that might be a son or it might be a worker, probably represents us as people. And also we need to look out, sometimes the allegory is shaped by um, images recognisable from Jewish history. So the parable of the vineyard and the, ten- of the, sorry, the parable of the tenants in which there's a vineyard, we're meant to think of Israel because vineyard is a common picture for Israel in the Old Testament. So it's not kind of random, oh, I think this seems like this. Actually, there'll be reasons why we'll link things together. Look for the surprising element. When you get to the bit in the story, which is meant to make you go, oh, that's not how I thought it would go. Or, oh, that's not who you'd expect to do that. That's normally the bit where the important meaning lies. And think about literary context. Who is the parable addressed to? Because that will help you determine what it might be saying. If it's addressed to some of Jesus' opponents, it's probably going to be something quite challenging to them. How is it introduced? Many parable introductions actually tell you what they're about to start with. And what is actually happening in the immediate context? Because if the message of the parable, as you read it, doesn't fit the context that it's given, then we haven't got the message right. Or Jesus is being really stupid. But it's more likely that we haven't got the message right. Matthew has quite a lot of parables, and I've put a few down here. So we'll take just under 10 minutes to do this activity and randomly pick whichever one you like, but don't order the first one, or we'll have very short feedback. And uh, look it up and see if you can work out by applying those tips particularly what it is that Jesus wants us to understand from these parables. Okie dokie. Did anyone try Matthew 13, 44 to 50? Or is anyone going to admit to having tried Matthew 44 to 50? That is the um, kingdom of heaven being like treasure in a field like a merchant in search of fine pearls. You want to do this? Fine. Anyone do? Matthew 18, 23 to 35. You did. You did. Fantastic. Tell me about Matthew 18, 20 to 35. What is Jesus trying to tell us? This is um, the parable of the unforgiving servant, by the way. So a guy who's forgiven by his master, but then won't forgive, uh, won't, sorry, he's let off debts by his master, but then won't let off the debts of someone who owes him. What did you learn from this? Cool, you've been nominated. Excellent. Excellent. Good. What from the text tells us is about forgiveness? Excellent, yeah, yeah. And also, and this is my thought, I should have given you the verses before. The context of this is, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sing against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven, seven times, but 70 times seven. And then he starts the parable. So the context, this parable must be about how often you should forgive someone and how you should forgive people. Otherwise, Jesus has gone on a major weird segue. Um, so you've got it absolutely right. And then in the, so the characters, are they significant? We've got a king and we've got servants. Who do we think these, these represent anyone? 
good, yeah. So the king's God, yep. And then we are the servants. So as I said, often figures of authority will be God and figures below the authority will be us. So the idea here is God has forgiven the king, has forgiven the servant, God has forgiven the individual, but now the individual is not forgiving another individual. So it's a really clear thing. As God has forgiven us, so we should forgive others. And actually, I mean, this echoes directly what Jesus says at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount. He says a parable illustrating the truth Jesus says there. Are you going to say something, Ben? You can have your... Well, he's confirming for us that it is God. So what, when he says he will do the same to every one of you, he's talking about the fact that the master summoned him, uh, talked to him, said you should have shown mercy, and then sent him to jail. So the master did this. Yeah. So will your heavenly father. So, yeah, I do get what you mean, but... Yeah, basically, yeah. I see, yeah, I mean, so he, he's coming, he's almost coming out of the narrative world then. He, here's the point that illustrates what will happen, and here's a statement which is telling you what will actually happen. So that's really, you know, so beginning and ending of parables, often Jesus is explaining them for us, which is really helpful, really good. What um, for that one, anyone do Matthew 25, the last one? Excellent. What did you find in Matthew 25? What's Jesus teaching us? I've missed loads. We're only doing a couple just for the time. Sorry. Interesting. Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost half and half. Jesus starts talking quite normally and then merges into talking about sheep and goats being judged, which I think is fairly parabolic. Uh, but no, you're right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because he says, he starts, verse 31, the Son of Man will come and will sit on his glorious throne and then he'll start judging. And then verse 33, the King will say to those on his right. So by verse 33, we are in a parable and clearly, because of the way it's structured, the king must be the same son of man. And what does this king do with his sheep and goats? According to what? Excellent, yeah. And does that mean they're saved by their work? Yeah, yeah. This whole, the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount is not what happens on the outside that matters, but what is inside will actually shape what happens on the outside. So these are people who have done this out of the change that God has done in their heart. It has manifested itself in caring for the poor. And interesting, you know, presumably this is kind of stuff done behind closed doors in a sense. This wasn't, this isn't hypocritical acts. This is stuff no one else saw. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. They're Excellent, yeah. They're bo both groups are surprised. They're not surprised where they're going. They're surprised why they're going there. So spot on your right. These guys haven't thought, well, if I do this, I'll get to go and have eternal life. Actually, they're doing this naturally by default almost because God has changed their heart. But it is that which God uses. And that's difficult. Well, Romans obviously difficult, obviously. Uh, Romans 2, though, it's the same thing. We'll be judged according to our works. Paul's not saying salvation is based on works. He's saying... There will be a judgment based on works, and the works will be the external proof of what is happening in our hearts, whether we be transformed through faith in Jesus or whether we haven't been. 
Um, I wanted to make this one because that's really important to notice that they're not surprised about why they're saved. It's also important to notice that they are sheep and goats. Sheep and goats, it's not that they are the same thing being divided. There is a fundamental difference between these two. It also shows us it's not about their works. It's about the fact they're fundamentally different. So sheep naturally do one thing. Goats naturally do another thing. It's also important, just as a theme we point out here again, the last verse, and these will go away into eternal, pu- eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus talks quite a lot about hell as well as about heaven. Um, this is one of the really clear verses. This is a really clear verse that shows that hell is just as eternal as heaven. So there's a common argument now um, called annihilationism, which says there isn't a literal hell. If you aren't saved by Jesus and you don't go to new creation with him, everything just kind of ends. It's quite appealing. It's just not what Jesus says. Jesus says eternal punishment is as parallel to eternal life. It's quite stark and strong, but this is Jesus himself challenging us. Parables in Matthew. Matthew contains quite a lot. Uh, Mark contains not many, very many, as we saw last week. Uh, And both Luke and Matthew share some, but also have some which are unique to themselves. And though there's that clumping together of parables in chapter 13, there's also quite a lot throughout the gospel. And in chapter 13, Jesus tells us why he uses parables, as he did in Mark 4 we looked at. He says parables are his response to the division between those to whom God's given the ability to see and understand these things and those to whom he hasn't. That thing of the parable of the sower, that actually it's not about um, what we try and do and try and bear good fruit from these seeds. Actually, it's about the floor, the the type of soil it falls on um, and what God has done there. And interestingly, just like in Mark 4, Jesus alludes to Isaiah 6 to 9, which is this thing of seeing and hearing and uh, something else thing. And then Matthew has the illusion, and then Matthew also adds in, this was to fulfill. Let's find it, so I actually read it to you. Matthew adds in, indeed, uh, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, that says. So yet more evidence of Matthew's theme of fulfillment of the Old Testament is pointing and leading up to Jesus, because he's not happy to leave Jesus' illusion there. He wants to shove it in our faces and say, do you realise this actually fulfills what was said? And later in the same chapter, he also talks about fulfilling there from a parable, uh, there from a psalm. And interestingly, he says here, all these things, verse 34, Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And from this point on in the gospel to the end, with the exception of chapter 23, which isn't quite teaching, Jesus doesn't give any teaching externally to the people uh, unless it's in a parable. So he really does use these parables as this kind of divisive thing between those who are inside and those who are outside. Oh, we should be finishing, but let's just do the resurrection really quickly. Mark doesn't give us the resurrection appearance. He gives us that wonderful dot, dot, dot. We're encouraged to go and encounter the risen Jesus ourselves. Matthew is tied up a few more loose ends and actually giving us encounters with the risen, risen Jesus. Chapter 28 starts with the empty tomb. Matthew gives us some more details. There's an earthquake as um, the women arrive at the tomb. They see the angel actually move the stone away. They flee to tell the other disciples, but they actually bump into Jesus on the way, and he tells them, as the angel had, to go off to Galilee. Then Matthew makes mention of the guards, and this was important because Matthew stresses when Jesus is buried that guards were put there. He knows that one of the rumours going on among the Jewish people is that uh, Jesus' body had been stolen by the disciples, but he shows us actually that rumour stems from the fact that the guards were actually paid to say that because they actually knew what had happened. And the really important bit is this, these last four verses, 16 to 20, the final commission. Jesus, uh, so the disciples, just as Jesus and the man at the tomb had told them, go back to Galilee, 
where they meet Jesus. Notice this takes place on another mountain. Remember, mountain is a significant setting in Matthew. It speaks of God decisively acting in his end time action. And the disciples worship Jesus. They've clearly, through what's happened with his death, with his resurrection, they've seen something more of who Jesus is. And this isn't actually the first time they've worshipped him in this gospel. When he calms the storm, they worship or at least pay homage to him. But even so, they've probably seen something more of who he is um, now. And then verse 18, Jesus declares he's been given all authority. Presumably this happens through his death and resurrection. And this is even though Jesus has previously amazed people with his authority and his teaching and his actions, but now he says all authority has been given to him. And the result of this is that his disciples should go and should make other disciples. And these disciples are to be from all nations. And this is important. We didn't look at it, but in the um, discourse on mission in chapter 10, Jesus sends the um, disciples out and tells them only to go and preach the gospel to the people of the house of Israel, only to fellow Jews. But throughout the gospel, there's these glimmers, these hints, actually, it's going to go further. Right at the beginning, remember, the wise men coming, Gentiles coming to worship Jesus, there's these glimmers, these hints that the gospel is going to go further than the Jews. And now that time comes and they're sent out to go to all nations and to proclaim the good news to, to them. And this making of disciples is described as baptising them and as teaching them to obey Jesus' commands. Those who've been taught by the great teacher become teachers of others. And again, this theme of obedience. What does it mean to be a son of God? It means to be obedient to God. And the very last thing Jesus tells them, what you should go and do, the way to make disciples, is by teaching people to be obedient to all of his commands, everything that he has taught them. He set the example by being the obedient son of God, even to death. And now he's calling his followers to do the same. And then the final, final words are a promise of help in this mission. Ends on this wonderful note that Jesus will always be with his disciples. And these final few verses make a wonderful bookend with the infancy narrative that we looked at at the very beginning. And this very cleverly constructed kind of concentric circles, starting in the middle ones, as it were. At the temptation, the devil places Jesus on a mountain. And he says, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you every kingdom, all these kingdoms and their glory. At the commission, here at the end, Jesus stands on a mountain again. This time he's being given all authority. And this time he isn't the one who's doing the worshipping. He is the one who is worshipped by his disciples. In the infancy narrative, the Gentiles, the um, uh, wise men, came and worshipped Jesus. At the commission, Jesus sends his disciples to go to the Gentiles. The word nations can also be translated Gentiles to make disciples who will worship Jesus. And the infancy narrative begins with this promise that a baby's coming, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And what's the final thing Jesus says at the end of the gospel? Wherever you go, oh no, what's it? Uh, behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. Matthew's deliberately crafted these to create bookends and I think there's two things going on. I think, for one, he's saying this is the end of the story. Everything that was kind of glimmered and hoped in those chapters we looked at with the birth of Jesus has now reached its fulfillment. So we're putting an end in bookend. But there's also a sense, I think, in that it starts a new story. All those things were the start of a story, the start of Jesus's obedient sonship, of uh, being a son in obedience to God, following that path. And just as Mark taught us, discipleship is about following Jesus, following that path. I just wonder, is, Mark, is Matthew saying all the elements are here for us to go again? <laughs> We're on a mountain again. There's authority. There's a call for the nations to come and to worship. And maybe Matthew's pointing us, now it's our turn to be obedient sons of God, 
who follow the path of Jesus and who call other people to be obedient to him. We'll stop there. You can read at home the distinctive themes and features of Matthew, which may help you if you want to read Matthew at another time. Please do remember we're not here next week. Please do tell anyone who's not here, who you know, but do come on Wednesday's prayer meeting. The Thursday afterwards, back in this room, same time, same place with Luke's Gospel. Thanks, guys.